Let's commit this time in prayer. Lord, as we come before your word now, and as we come to look at some very deep things in your word, things that are, are not the easiest to think through, but things that have deep meaning and deep consequence in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Father, we pray that uh, your spirit will be working in each one of us, that you would help illuminate our hearts and our minds, that we might hear your word and that it may uh, take root and grow in our hearts. May you give us clarity in your word and as we seek to apply your word into the situations that we encounter in our lives each and every day. Father, we ask this in your son's name. Amen. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, the Lord God delivered the sixth commandment to Moses for the people of Israel. It was this, you shall not murder. We live in an age and culture of extraordinary contradiction. There is the abhorrence of the murderous violence that comes through our televisions on the nightly news. And yet once that's finished, there is the great desire to sit down and enjoy the latest murderous violence that Hollywood has put together for our entertainment. There is wonder and amazement at the technological advancements that enable what was reported in the UK only two months ago, that a team of surgeons uh, removed a 24-week-old baby girl from her mother's womb operated on the baby's spinal cord and then placed the baby back into her mother's womb until she was ready to be born, which is just utterly astounding. And yet, last October, a woman pregnant with twins uh, was killed in a car crash in New South Wales uh, one week before she was due to give birth. The person responsible was charged with manslaughter over the woman's death but the deaths of the unborn children were only considered as part of the injuries sustained by the mother. They had no legal personhood of their own. The husband's words got right to the heart of the matter when he said, I did not bury my wife and two injuries. I buried my wife and my unborn twin sons. We see further contradiction in that our society commends the efforts uh, of those seeking to stem the growing trend of suicide in our nation. And yet we witness the passionate arguments of those seeking to legalise euthanasia, stating that people have the right to determine for themselves when they should die. We live in a country where protesters uh, decry the inhumane treatment of animals and are denounced for their method, but not their cause, Yet at the same time, it's a country that will seek to silence anyone who points out its culpability in the murders of an estimated 65,000 unborn children every year. How do Christians respond to all of this? One thing is to understand what God teaches us in his word about the sanctity of human life. And that's what the sixth commandment points to, right? The positive side of do not murder is do preserve life. The contradictions that we experience in this age and culture immediately fall away when we we look at the world from God's perspective. And then we understand why there are contradictions in the first place, because people are trying to make moral decisions without any moral absolute. 
Uh, They've sought to replace God with themselves and that's why, for example, an unborn child is considered a baby at certain times and at other times simply a fetus. There's no moral absolute. Morality becomes an issue of convenience, able to change whenever it's necessary for an argument. And that's what leads us to the most important thing. Because we we can't respond to the examples raised merely with moral arguments. As Christians, we must go beyond that. We must proclaim the gospel. When the Spirit of God convicts sinners through the word, regenerating their hearts and enabling them to turn away from their sin and turn to faith in Christ Jesus, then they will begin to see things the way God sees. The church is not a political operative. The church is a spiritual operative. Now, by all means, individual believers should take the opportunities uh, to affect change in society through the, the political processes that are available to us. But we cannot forget that the church is a spiritual entity. We are to be about the business of making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, one soul at a time through the proclamation of the gospel. Here is where true change occurs. Here is where real forgiveness and real hope and real love occurs as well. For in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, an event that we commemorate next week at Easter, here, in the most abhorrent murder of all time, here is the only true path to life. So as we think through these matters this morning, I'm going to start by asking you to please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. On the sixth day of creation, the world being a mere 120 hours old, God began making all the land-dwelling animals. And then we read these marvellous words in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What do we notice here? Well, straight away, we see an extraordinary difference between humanity and the rest of creation. No other part of creation is made in the image and likeness of God. Humanity was not an evolutionary extension. Humanity is unique and special because humanity alone is made in the image and likeness of God. The terms image and likeness are usually understood as as being synonymous, but recent Biblical studies have shown that while they are very similar, they have a different emphasis. One is horizontal and the other one is vertical. The word image has a horizontal emphasis. It speaks to the way God has made mankind to be his representatives on this world. He's made mankind to be servant kings over his creation. Just like Nebuchadnezzar set up a giant image of gold to express his sovereignty over the land, so God has set his image bearers on the land. The word likeness has a vertical emphasis. It speaks to the relationship between God and humanity. 
And that relationship is best thought of as sonship. And like the rest of creation, humanity was created for a special relationship with God. The Bible records that Adam did not evolve from other animals, but that God made Adam in a special act. And God then formed Eve out of the rib of Adam. And so Eve was no less of value than Adam because she was made of the same substance as Adam. And then since the entire human race has come from Adam and Eve, it means that every single human being is to be treated with the same dignity and worth because we're all of the same substance. It means there are no lesser human beings among us. There are no humans of lesser evolutionary development, so we need not be fazed by the story that came out this week that an ancient human species was discovered in a cave in the Philippines. Because there is no such thing as human species. But the fact that this thinking is out there accounts for why people make those same assumptions about different races in recent history. You know the song, Jesus Loves the Little Children. It has that line, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. But the Christian scholars at Answers in Genesis uh, give a more biblical and scientific rendering. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, shades of brown from dark to light, all are precious in his sight. The reason for this is that people are not black or white, but different shades of brown, due in the main to a level of pigment called melanin. Points out, again, the fact that every person, every single person, has been made in the image and likeness of God. But of course, we know that things in the world are not the way they were originally created to be. And the Christian response to that is that it is a result of sin. In Genesis 3, Moses, the author of Genesis, lays out very clearly how Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and sin and death was the result. The great 5th century theologian Augustine of Hippo explained that when Adam and Eve were created, they had the ability to die or not to die. Had they obeyed God's command, they would have been enabled to eat of the tree of life and live forever. But after the fall, death is no longer simply a possibility, it's a necessity. It's a punishment for sin. The moment they sinned, the ravages of death came upon them. But there was also spiritual death, meaning that all humanity was bound in sin and each person is bound to face the eternal punishment for sin if they do not repent. There are those who suggest that the fall did not actually affect the nature of human beings, uh, but that each human being is, is born in a kind of state of mutual, sorry, moral neutrality. It's like Adam and Eve. They had the ability to sin or the ability not to sin. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible teaches that all people retain a natural ability to make choices. We all make choices. But those choices are guided by our desires. And because of the fall, each person is born with a sinful nature. And so while we're all free to make choices, those choices are limited by a sinful nature. And so we sin because we are sinners. 
And all of this was passed on to the next generation. And it didn't take long before the effect of sin took hold. The first murderer in human history was Cain, the son of Adam and Eve. And then by the time we get ten generations between Adam and Noah, we read in Genesis 6 verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we read in the following chapters of Genesis that the Lord God wiped out the whole of his creation with a worldwide flood, saving only eight people and pairs of all the land animals and the birds. Turn with me to Genesis 9. Here God reiterates to Noah the covenant that God had originally made with Adam. But note what has changed. In verse 3 we read this. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So prior to this, animals had only been used for milk and clothing and sacrifices. But this word from God means that it's no longer a vegetarian world, it is now an omnivorous world. Now that's not a mandate, but it is divine permission. If you want to be a vegetarian, you can, but you don't have to be. This once again shows the difference between mankind and animal kind, because look at what is said about the shedding of man's blood in verses 5 to 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require it and from man. From from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Well, here God is re-establishing his rule in this world through his image bearers. If one of his image bearers is murdered, it is an affront to God's rule. It is an attack on God himself. And that's why murder is so abhorrent. And that's why the penalty for the one who commits murder is to be so final. Even though every person is now born with a sinful nature, that does not negate God's original intent and design that they were born to represent him. That's the reason why even after the fall, the value and worth of every single human life is so extraordinarily high. Now, while the sixth commandment of Exodus 20 verse 13 was given specifically to the nation of Israel, it was a reflection of the command given to Noah, which is a command for all nations. As all nations came through Noah and his offspring, them being the only ones alive after the flood. You shall not murder is therefore not a command restricted to Israel, but it's a command for the whole world. Well, with that groundwork, let's try and deal with some specifics concerning murder. And I'm fully aware that what we talk about will no doubt raise a lot of mixed opinions Uh, but our greatest desire as christians should be to understand what god has said 
in his word and to let that guide what we do. So if this does raise any questions, then please come and speak to me after the service and we can work through those together, Uh, especially given the fact that every single one of these things that we're going to address are worthy of their own full discussion, so we can't cover everything. My aim is simply to give you a basic framework. Uh, I would certainly recommend to you an excellent book by Wayne Grudem, uh, Christian Ethics. It came out last year. Uh, A bit of light reading in there, but if you want to go in more depth on these issues, I would highly recommend that. So let's look at what murder is not. We need to be clear that the Bible says you shall not murder, but it does not say you shall not kill. It doesn't say you shall not kill, it says you shall not murder. And that is an important distinction to keep in mind because it means that not all killing fits into the category of murder. So, for example, capital punishment is not murder. In Genesis 9, verse 6, we read, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now here, God expressly commands that the person who kills another should be killed themselves. That's not murder, that is justice. Now, this was never to be undertaken as a revenge, and it was not an individual's responsibility to enact justice, but it was the responsibility of the ruling authority. In Romans 12, verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, "'Beloved, never avenge yourselves.'" But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Then in the next chapter, we learn that the Lord's vengeance does not necessarily wait until the great white throne room. In Romans 13, verse 4, Paul says of the governing authorities, He is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, many people look at the death penalty as as something that is a relic of an unsophisticated and brutal time. It's said that the death penalty is an affront to human dignity. Unfortunately, however, in removing the penalty that God imposed for those who take a human life, It removes the true dignity of the life or the lives that were taken in the first place. It diminishes the extraordinary value and worth of human life. Now, many arguments have been mustered to support the uh, the removal of the death penalty, especially the fact that it's enforced by flawed governments, some more flawed than others. Now, that's no doubt true. But we should simply remember that when Paul wrote these words to the Roman Christians, the ruling authority was the unstable and bloodthirsty Nero. Well, the commandment to not murder does not apply either to the issue of self-defence, if the defence that was used was not excessive. In Exodus 22, we read this, If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him, But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt 
for him, he shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. It was a decree that protected the homeowner. If, if something happened at night and he, he killed an intruder, that was one thing. But if it happened during broad daylight when people were about and there was protection for the thief from being on the receiving end of excessive violence. Jesus also rebuked Peter when he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant in the Garden of Gethsemane. However, that was related to Peter trying to stop Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus was not denouncing the legitimate use of self-defence in other circumstances. In Matthew 26, verse 52, he told Peter to put his sword away, not throw his sword away. Now, if that is the case on an individual level, we also need to see self-defence on a national level in the context of war. As Paul said in Romans 13, the, the government of a nation has the responsibility of protecting its citizens from those doing wrong within the nation. But that certainly extends to protecting its citizens from those seeking to cause it harm from outside of the nation. Now on this issue, as with every other issue, there is much debate and it has been going on for a very long time. Right from the days of the early church, uh, people have been trying to wrestle with the moral intricacies related to the matter of war. Uh, the great Augustine, again, he thought long and hard about the examples in Scripture where faith and war coexisted. Uh, he saw that neither the centurion of Luke chapter 10 or Cornelius the centurion of Acts chapter 10 or the soldiers who came to John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, none of them, Augustine noted, None of them were told to renounce their occupation in order to be good Christians. These observations led Augustine to, to set up a framework for discerning when it was right to fight a war and discerning how it would be right to fight the war when it did come. Now, this has come to be known as just war theory. And it's seeking to apply biblical principles to the matter of war. And it's another case for why you shall not murder does not mean you shall not kill. But now let's consider what does constitute murder. Let's look at what murder is. And here we are talking about the purposeful taking of another person's life without just cause. The Old Testament makes a differentiation between degrees of unjust death. For example, we, we read in Exodus chapter 21 that whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. So we can recognise that today as well. We can see that difference uh, for example, there is a difference between murder and manslaughter. But here is where we need to think harder as Christians concerning the scope of murder. And I'll do my very best to tread gently as we deal with these. Because the first is the matter of abortion. When does life begin? Well, the answer to that is at fertilisation or conception. Diane Irving is a biochemist and biologist 
And she says this, Upon fertilization, parts of human beings have actually been transformed into something very different from what they were before. They have been changed into a single, whole human being. And this scientific truth affirms what the scriptures have always affirmed. In Psalm 51, verse 5, King David declared, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David was not referring to his conception as being a sinful act, but that he had, he had a sinful nature from the moment that he was conceived. But the point for our purposes now is to see that he was a me at the time of his conception. He had personhood right from the moment he was conceived. Or consider this from Exodus 21 again. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. In Luke 1, verse 44, Elizabeth said to her cousin Mary, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So John the Baptist was not an inanimate fetus with no personhood. He was a living baby. A few verses earlier in Luke 1, the angel Gabriel said to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the eternal Son of God took on human flesh the moment of his miraculous conception. If life begins the moment of conception, then to purposefully bring about the end of that life is rightly considered murder. Now, people can dress it up, and they do intentionally dress it up under the guise of women's reproductive health. And they do so in order to draw attention away from the reality of what is truly at stake. People talk about safe abortions, but how is that in any way safe for the child at the centre of the procedure? On one website, it casually states, abortion is one of the most common surgical procedures performed in Australia. Around one in three Australian women will have the procedure in their lifetime. The idea of stating this fact is to no doubt give people peace that there's nothing abnormal or morally questionable about having an abortion. But here we need, as always, to hear what God says. You shall not murder. Now, if you're here today and this speaks something or to something in your past, then you do need to repent of this sin before God. But... I implore you to know that there is hope and forgiveness at the cross of Christ. This is not a sin that is outside of forgiveness. Come to Jesus, ask him to forgive and he will. And he will renew you and give you true peace. And the hope of the gospel is that in Christ you will get to see your little one again in the new heavens and the new earth. At the other end of the scale to abortion is the next matter of euthanasia. The word itself means good death. There's nothing good 
about this. This is the purposeful ending of a person's life, which is murder. Now, there is a big difference between allowing a person to die and ensuring that a person will die. With with all of our technological advancements, people are enabled to live a lot longer than they have in previous generations. And while that can be incredibly beneficial, there may come a time in a person's life where they do not want all these interventions to prolong their life anymore. And for the Christian person, they can assert with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.21 that to live is Christ, to die is gain. But this passive approach is totally different from the active approach of euthanasia. See, only God has the power of life and death. Deuteronomy 32, Moses sings of God, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. When Job's children were killed, He exclaimed in Job chapter 1, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now there is much that we could say in this matter, much related to the the growth that that God can enable throughout our suffering. The grace that God provides to us in our most incredible times of need. The Bible is full of expressions calling for people to endure. But of course, that is where the hope of the gospel comes in, isn't it? The promise of eternal life with God for those who repent and trust in Christ Jesus. The the knowledge of a time in the future where there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. Our present sufferings are nothing compared to that incredible glory in the future. But we must certainly acknowledge the slippery slope that comes about with euthanasia. What begins as a choice to die soon becomes an obligation to die. And there's also the danger that as euthanasia becomes more acceptable and accessible, then Christians may well face this horrible temptation for themselves. This is another reason why we should have a clear biblical framework for these matters in our mind. In between these matters is also the issue of suicide, which is self-murder. If God commands that we must not murder other humans, for they bear his image, then that certainly means we must not inflict that suffering upon ourselves, for we each bear God's image too. There's a difference, however, between sacrificially laying down one's life for another and taking one's own life. That's why the book of Judges, we see that Samson is commended when he gave his life to push down the temple columns and kill the enemies of God's people. Whereas people like King Saul and Judas Iscariot are not spoken of as examples to follow. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul reminds believers of the value of our lives because our bodies have become temples of the Holy Spirit They have been bought at a price and so we are to treat them with respect and care to the glory of God. Every person struggling with suicidal thoughts needs the gospel just like everyone else. 
But Wayne Grudem wisely cautions of the need for sensitivity. He quotes Proverbs 25, verse 20. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. And he says this, attempting to force cheerfulness on a person in despair can make the situation worse if it is done in an insensitive way. For the Christians struggling with these matters, there is great encouragement in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 when Paul explains that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Tragically, we understand that there are times when even Christians succumb to this temptation. And the question comes up, can Christians who commit suicide be forgiven? And the answer to that must certainly be yes. There is an unforgivable sin, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in our study of Mark 3. But that unforgivable sin was not suicide, nor was it anything else that we've talked about this morning for that matter. The unforgivable sin was attributing the Holy Spirit's testimony to Jesus Christ as coming from the devil. Jesus said that all other sins were able to be forgiven. As Wayne Grudem says, The question is not whether someone was a sinner at the moment he or she died, for we all will still be sinners when we die, but whether that person had trusted, truly trusted in Christ for forgiveness of sin. You see, our justification before God is not based on our own righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ alone. Now, if you're here today and struggling with these issues, then please make sure you speak to someone because that may indeed be one of the ways that God is providing for you to escape falling into this temptation. Now, many people may have been sitting here this morning thinking that these things really haven't had any application to their own lives. But the last matter we need to address is something that humbles us all. Is that of anger. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said these words as part of the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said that it... You have heard that it was said to those of old... You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus was not saying that Moses got the sixth commandment wrong. He was saying that the religious leaders had interpreted Moses wrong. They'd remained on the surface, but Jesus showed that Moses' words penetrated much deeper. True righteousness did not depend merely on avoiding physical murder, but also angry words and angry thoughts that stem from a sinful heart. Later in Matthew 15, Jesus emphasised this truth again, Explaining that when, sorry, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, 
adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. The way we speak and the way we think make each one of us guilty before God. We've all committed murder. In our pride, we can tend to judge ourselves in relation to others. We've never killed anyone. We've never had an abortion. We've never had a struggle with suicidal thoughts. These are things that others contend with, not me. I'm one of the good ones. But how have your thoughts been this week? Have you contemplated anger towards someone else? Have you expressed anger towards someone else through your words or your demeanour? Consider the way you've talked to your spouse this week. Consider how you've thought about your family. Consider how you've thought about others as you've driven along the road or walked into the shops or even walked into church this morning. Now consider the gravity of just one of those instances. Just one of those instances of sinful thought is worthy of an eternity of God's wrath. Just one. And we need to see this because that is the first step to understanding the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, we can't understand that it is good news until we understand how dire our condition is. And so what is the good news? Now that we've all been humbled by the words of Scripture, well, the good news is that the most infamous murder of all time was part of the sovereign plan of God to save his people from their sins. While the religious leaders killed Christ for the purpose of bringing an end to his ministry, God permitted their sinful and heinous act for the greater purpose of defeating sin and death. It was a plan established before the creation of the world, was a promise made in Genesis 3 at the time of the fall of humanity, that an offspring of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. On the day of Pentecost, when the disciples of Christ were filled with the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter stood before a crowd in Jerusalem and declared what we read in Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was, in, was not possible for him to be held by it. This was the greatest injustice of all time. This was the most infamous murder of all time, a murder of one truly innocent. The wages of sin is death, and as a result of the sin of Adam, every person born into this world with a sinful nature, we are all born with a sinful nature, and each one of us is born to die. But at Calvary, one was murdered in whom there was no sin. 
And his innocence was vindicated when on the third day he was divinely raised from death. Raised in the same body that had gone into the grave, but now imperishable, glorified, powerful, fit for heavenly living. Here is the gospel. That we were born to die as a punishment for sin, yet Christ Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh and stood in our place. He lived a life in complete obedience to God, and on the cross he submitted himself in complete obedience to the punishment due to the sins of his people. In John three sixteen to 17 we read these glorious words, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Humanity stood condemned because of sin and Christ came to bring salvation. Not merely the possibility, but the actuality. He came to save. And he came to make the old new. He came to turn fallen image bearers who were enemies of God into restored image bearers. That's why Paul can say of God in Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So if you wish to experience the love of God, the forgiveness of sins, the freedom from the guilt and shame of your thoughts and actions, then repent of your sin. Acknowledge it was not merely a mistake, but an affront against God. But then take hold of and embrace the Son of God who lived and died and rose again that those who believe may be renewed and have life and communion with the sovereign God who made them, redeemed them and will bless them with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And one day, not only our souls but our bodies will be renewed and glorified and death will be no more. This has been a difficult topic for us to address this morning. But it's very timely given all the examples that we've easily garnered just from recent weeks. But it's important to think through. And it's also very timely to consider as we head into Easter. You shall not murder speaks of the sanctity of human life. And the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ shows the depths of God's love to redeem a people from sins such as these. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. Father, we pray that you would humble us by your spirit to see our dire need. That it is not merely our actions that are an affront to you, but our thoughts, our our hearts. Father, we thank you for the gospel that it's by your grace and your mercy that you have come through your son, Jesus Christ, through his life and death and resurrection. Through him, sin is forgiven. And through faith in him, we are reconciled to you, once enemies, now sons and daughters of the living God.
Father, as we think through the the issue of the sixth commandment today and as we meditate on those things over the coming days, we pray for your wisdom. And we pray for your wisdom as we not only think about that in our own lives, uh, but as we think about that with our family and as we enter and engage in conversations with people around us. May we not settle for merely moral arguments, but may you give us the grace and the courage and the wisdom to proclaim the only pathway to peace, the only pathway to life through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.